On this exciting episode of Starpod Log, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1983 in issues 69 and 70. Lou, Rich, and Max discuss the role that Anthony Daniels played as C-3PO in Return of the Jedi. Jim Hill considers Walt Disney World's futuristic park Epcot Center. Plus, the music of 1983. And more on this episode of Star Pod Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Look forward to attending Monsterama, the incredible classic sci-fi and horror convention in Atlanta, Georgia. This is a convention we've been to before. It returns Halloween weekend. What do you love about Monsterama? Um, I, I love seeing all the people there. They have um, guests from, from older movies. It's, it's a classic sci-fi horror monster con. And I love all the programming tracks. They've got some really uh, different type of tracks there. The literary track, the, uh, like, like a maker's track where you learn how to make costumes or old style robots, things like that. It's really fun. This year, there's a special focus on the Sinbad movies. In fact, they've got Carolyn Monroe and Patrick Wayne. Yes, great guests. As well as a variety of Star Trek II guests. We look forward to seeing our listeners at Monsterama. Starlog Magazine, issue number 69, cover date April 1983. <laughs> Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Whose Morality? From Christopher L. Smith of Ohio. With the flare-up of such groups as the Moral Majority and others, the true freedom of the people of our planet is threatened. In Starlog number 65, I read the letter from Mary Ann Schuler. I can be very sympathetic to her because recently a group of people wanted to ban the use of rock and roll in a writing class at our high school, claiming that it is satanic. These things are only the beginning. We, as lovers of freedom and the rights of others and their individuality, must defend these things against those who would press us into their mold. We must fight these robbers of true freedom, 
not with threats or fear or guilt or physical force, but with simple logic and reason. So this is commentary on what's going on in, in that time period, the early 80s. Parents are freaking out over kids playing role-playing games such as Dungeons and & Dragons and the perceived notion that a lot of rock and heavy metal music was satanic. Yeah, it, it was the thing back then. It was like all, all of these, I mean, probably because like for music, MTV made, made visuals of it now where the parents could actually see it and go, I, I can't believe my kids are watching that. <laughs> you better believe that was part of it. Yeah. And, and it even, it came to my my small hometown. There was actually a preacher who apparently was um, going across the country talking about how rock music was satanic. And he would give like a revival at a church. For one week, he would stay at one church and talk about this. This era was known as the Satanic Panic. People were freaking out over role-playing games especially, and anything that, that even hinted at something that, even commentaries of something that, that would be in the realm of demonism to the point where kids were being accused of committing suicide for playing games. That and, and there, were, there was even a story of of a kid committing murder as part of a game. So, so the yeah, the the panic was going on back then. And we got to remember, this is when the Dungeons and Dragons Red Box was being sold in mainstream stores like Toys R Us and Walden Books. Previously, you could only get Dungeons and Dragons manuals at hobby stores. So, as as you touch on as well, MTV was bringing it to the masses, different forms of music that parents just could not handle. But Starlog readers could. Yeah, yes, um, as this reader said, it's the beginning of taking away our freedom. Force from Down Under. From Sarah Long in Australia. I empathize with the plight of the Swedish Star Wars fans. Starlog number 65 who cannot see the full uncut version of The Empire Strikes Back because of hard censorship by the Swedish Film Board. We, the Star Wars fans of, our, of Australia, are angry too. The release date of Return of the Jedi in America is 25 May 1983, while the Australian release is set for October 1983. It's not fair. For those fans unable to resist the influx of paraphernalia, Beginning in May, by October, it will be very hard to go into a cinema to see Jedi totally unprepared. There are numerous petitions, starting in most Australian state, states, which will be sent to Lucasfilm during January 1983. We hope the Force will be with us. Crazy to think that there was a time period where movies were released months apart throughout the world. Yeah, and the, and the person being being worried about seeing it later than everyone else. And we've discussed it earlier. Do you remember that it was the reverse for Superman 2? Superman 2 was released in Australia before it came to the United States. It was late 81 in Australia, but early 82 in the U.S. Crazy to think that, that the movie studios couldn't figure out a unified way to distribute films back then. I mean, back then the movies were were on a physical film, and the films had to had to physically go from one theater to the next. Yeah, and they were huge. If you've ever seen films, what they look like, the reels, they're ginormous. I mean, shipping across the world like that had to be part of the problem. 
Yeah, it, it probably was. Log Entries, latest news from the world of science fiction. Welcome to 1983D. This is a news article talking about 3D productions hitting the screens in 1983. Currently in production is Universal Studios' Jaws 3D, Orion De Laurentiis' Amityville 3D. Waiting in the wings for 3D release are Rottweiler and Hot Hair. Do you remember that being a big deal in the 80s? 3D movies around this time period? I mean, like those movies like Jaws 3D, I don't think I ever had a chance to see it back then. I didn't live in an area where they showed it. That's right. It was limited releases that had the 3D movies. Previous to this, though, there was a big push for watching 3D movies, on, like classic movies, Revenge of the Creature from the Black Lagoon, things like that on uh, regular television stations. But there was there was a gimmick that just lasted just a little bit, having 3D movies. It had a resurgence decades later with a different type of technology, but this was the classic 3D with one red eye and one blue eye in the lenses that were with the glasses that were handed out at movie theaters. All I remember is the 3D posters from back then, where you had the glasses with the red lens and the blue lens. And those, I didn't really see that they were that special, just looking at the posters. I loved it. Are you going to be (laughs) glow-in-the-dark in in 3D? I was obsessed with them. What we also loved was the Jaws 3D trading cards as well, because it came with a little set of 3D glasses, little tiny ones that you put on the front of your nose. Okay, like you're looking through a microscope or something. (laughs) E.T. Earth Center. At the conclusion of E.T., the visitor from space left his friend Elliot with fond memories, telling him, I'll be right here. Well, now E.T.'s found a new home at Universal Studios E.T. E.T. Earth Center, where the extraterrestrial has left us all with an amazing legacy, the grand display of the most intensive merchandising campaign ever spawned by a motion picture. My parents brought us to see this E.T. adventure at Universal Studios in California. It was pretty awesome. You go through these little buggies, and you go through the story of E.T., but, like, the buggies were kind of sort of shaped like you're on a bicycle or something. I mean, E.T. mania was a real thing. The movie was a huge hit, so, yeah, I can imagine. And they probably had a lot of people at Universal Studios. I think I saw the E.T. ride... You know, at, at Universal Theme Park years later. Yeah, it ran for a long time. Road Warrior revs out. It should be no surprise to anyone that the top-selling video cassette is still Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. The combined power of its wide following and low thirty-nine ninety-five retail price tag is hard to beat. Following with the same formula is Embassy Home Video's release of Blade Runner which has an additional five minutes of film excised before theatrical release and will also carry the thirty nine ninety five price tag. This is the time period where finally videotapes were being slashed in price. Now, modern day, think about that. Most of us wouldn't want to pay $40 for a DVD now. But in 1983, that was considered a bargain. Because most videos were between... 80 and 100 dollars crazy to think that huh yeah 
I mean, I don't know why they were so much to begin with, but I do remember them being really expensive, and then finally the prices came down. And forty dollars in nineteen eighty-three money—that's over a hundred dollars now. Yeah, yeah, it was still a lot. Yeah, it's still ludicrous money, of course. That's again, I always laugh when people say things were so much affordable years ago. Well, maybe some things, but definitely not all things. The article goes on to say, also in the top ten as we go to press are the VHS stereo versions of Star Wars, The Thing, and Firefox. Showing strong sales are VHS versions of Escape from New York, Conan, and Sword and the Sorcerer. Just released from Warner Home Video is the Australian action-studded epic The Road Warrior, a sequel to 1979's Mad Max. The VHS version is available in stereo at retail price tag of $69.95. Well, the Road Warrior was popular too back then. Farewell, Famous Monsters. Famous Monsters of Filmland, the premier magazine devoted to showcasing films of the fantastic, has ceased publication one issue shy of the 25th anniversary. Here, here's the the strangeness about this article. We know why famous monsters of film and cease publication. It's because Starlog's sister magazine, Fangoria, took over that fan base. So, so yeah, just um, one magazine being replaced by another. They were both good. The problem is, famous monsters of film and had a hard time catching up with modern audiences. They still had so much of a retro feel to it they didn't put color inserts in they they really i mean force j ackerman was amazing for his time period but he just couldn't keep up with the way movies and television productions and especially in the realm of starlog starlog was tapping into video games comic books it wasn't just about the movies so it was time to pass the torch warning warning that's no moon we're approaching Star Wars. You bubble-headed booby. That's the wrong robot. We're not here to talk about Lost in Space. Please, Thank you for your cooperation. Uh, it's That's not RoboCop either. Oh. You're terminated. I'll be back. Is that guy? No, the Star Wars, you know, Beep boop beep boop. Oh, beep boop beep boop. Yes, we're here to talk about beep boop beep boop and pee pee poo poo. Is that his name? C3PO? Is that the one we're talking about? That's the one. All your hints, all your hints brought me right to that conclusion. They were excellent on point impersonations of robots. We like robots. The British one was good. The the Jonathan Harris was fantastic. It sounds just like him. Yeah. But the, yeah, that, speaking of Jonathan Harris, he would have he would have relished the role of playing C three PO, and and sadly he got to play uh, <laughs> Lucifer on Battlestar Galactica, the the oh, evil C three PO. Hey, Bio don't sell him short. He was also on um, oh my god, Space Academy. So Space Academy. Not, yep. I forget that that really wacky hairdo that eighties do. Mm-hmm. So can you know, you... It's inter- and it's interesting because you know I you know as going because I mean clearly I I'm not familiar with him you know with this, with the with the work so I, I looked him up on you know I looked up Anthony Daniels on 
you know, after after reading the article, he was talking about, he, you know, he's an actor. And I guess he was, must have been a British stage actor or something. Because when you look him up on IMDb, you know, you got to go a long ways to find him, you know, having done anything but C-3PO. All right. But did you know that... Uh, did you know that uh, he did? Uh, well, so I had. I thought, well, we're gonna we're gonna go before the you know go back before the Star Wars uh, stuff and see where you know what he was doing in seventy five, seventy six, and that. But uh, did some British TV, and uh, you know, then of course Star Wars in seventy seven. He you know, and then uh, he was on the Donnie Marie show, play C three PO on that. Yeah, and but he did he did the the voice of Legolas. Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings for the animated show that came on in 78. Oh, he did the in Ralph Bakshi. Wow. Okay. Yep. You just blew Rich's yeah. mind. That was fantastic. Man. I always loved that. that into history. I did not know that he did the voice in that. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I mean, I like I said, I mean, you know, and, he did anything but C-3PO. That was about all everybody ever knew him from. Well, you know, it's some other, some other television shows that, I mean, they're coming up here that I'm not familiar with. Uh, the Country Diary of somebody or other, the Edison Twins, um, These are but a lot of people. stuff, you know, a, a lot of stuff uh, he did, you know, played C-3PO, um, but then in the uh, uh, mid-80s, okay, you got uh, three up, two down TV series, he did one episode there, TV series singles, he did an episode, played a guy named Jeremy, you know, um, we well, did so the bill. Did. The bill was a, a a great like kind of crime drama. Yep. On the, the bill, really awesome. Yeah, one episode there. The uh, prime suspect. He did a. He played as pathologist. Uh, you know, so he he's done some other stuff, but I. But you know, like I said, I mean, it, he his he wasn't an actor that you know you immediately see him and go, oh, that's a, that guy. You know, not like like the guy who plays Hellboy. You know, or or you know, the guy who plays Beauty and the Beast or something like that. You know, outside oh, yeah, of the he's, makeup. He's dressed, in, he's dressed in a plastic robot outfit for most of his Right, time. I mean, outside of the tin can, you know, I mean, the, the <laughs> C-3PO, you can't, you know, to get him out of the can, you know, he could walk down the street, you know, and, and nobody would know. And, and, you know, pretty much do that unmolested, you know, because it's like, hey, I mean, nobody would go, whoa, hey, that's, that's C-3PO walking over there, you know? Well, it's funny, they talk about... uh in this article, you know, when they interview him, of course, it's it's just before Return of the Jedi is coming out. And of course, he's he's not dropping any hints as to what happens. And probably Return of the Jedi is where his biggest moment, right? Because he becomes the 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 king of the Ewoks or the god of the Ewoks oh, yeah. and stuff like yeah, that. That was, but, that was in oh yeah, that was Return of the Jedi. That was Return of the Jedi. I mean, he's great, but that, but he talks about how he's sort of you know considered it a a curse to a certain degree getting this role because he was a theater actor and he didn't want to be associated like you said max he didn't want to be associated with star wars but then he, he kind of says like like you also uh pointed out that he's like well i guess because i'm i'm under all this all this makeup and in this outfit people don't really recognize me so i i have the luxury of being in one of the greatest blockbusters of all time but people aren't swamping me but I, at the same time i'm wondering if he's sort of like oh you know I kind of wish people would come and ask me for my autograph like they do Mark. Oh, we'll talk or, about that shortly. Or, oh, or, or what's it called? But, you know, <laughs> he seems kind of a little bit, you know, and, and I guess he's got, I think he has a reputation of being that way a little, you know, because he is a, a British theater actor that he's he's got a little snootiness about him to a certain degree. And, and I can imagine, you know, being approached to play like, you know, by George, you want me to play what? 
a golden robot. I played Shakespeare on the stage. So, so he, I, I don't know whether I should trust a strange computer or not. Like he, uh, he did a, uh, he did a visit where you could go meet him at the very popular Chiller Theater that comes out every year here in New Jersey, which is about an hour north of me. And I took my daughter when she was very young. And I forgot which Star Wars film had just come out, but they had a lot of the minor actors that were playing, um, like, uh, Jedi in the background and the fight scenes. I forget where the, they're riding around the arena. And, and they were all very, very humble people. They were very nice, so happy to sign autographs, take pictures. And most of them were hard to recognize because they were full of makeup anyway. He had a line for people to come up and we got in line and, you know, people are excited to see him. Nobody was acting out. Nobody was acting out. Nobody was being rude or anything like that. And he is a very, he looks very fragile because he's so small and thin. If you really think about it, fit in that outfit. And um, we were in line and, you know, you pay to get his autograph and take a picture. And I remember he, I'm sure it was a lot of pressure, but he kind of stopped everyone, put his hand out. Brought security over. Is like, these people need to move back. They're too close to me. I'm like, they were 10 feet away <laughs> in line coming up one at a time. And he was very, I get it. You know, Adam West was always a little standoffish because he probably got tired of being called Batman all the time. But I got to be honest with you. I was so turned off. I just, I left the line. I'm like, the heck with this. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm not doing that. I don't, I, there's so many people that are so nice and so humble. And then you got this guy. And listen. I'm sure he didn't want to be bowled over. He was not a big dude, but come on. Well, maybe, maybe because I, uh, a friend of mine uh, had the had an opportunity to uh, escort, and, and I and forgive me because I don't know his name. You guys will, but the guy who played Chewbacca. Oh, uh, Peter oh, Mayhew. Peter Mayhew. Yeah, okay. he was a super nice guy. Super. Too. That's that's that was what he said too. He said the guy was an awesome guy, and uh, again, another character that if you see him out of out of the Chewbacca. Which is, by the way, my favorite Star Trek character. Um, Wait, did you say your Star Trek character? Yes, Chewbacca is my favorite Star Trek character. Yeah, so, and he's a really nice guy too, and you know the guy who plays him. You know, but again, you take him out of the costume or out of the makeup, and you know, another guy walk down the street. You know, he, he, I think I don't know was the same conference, but when I went, he also went to Chiller Theater, and Chiller Theater was basically held in a hotel, and you'd walk around. They'd have a big room and. Some of the bigger celebrities like Linda Blair, they always had a line and you can recognize her a mile away. She was very kind. A lot of Julie Newmar, Adam West. Adam West was always a little standoffish, but I get it. Peter Mayhew was sitting at a card table as you walked along, as you came up the stairs and walked along the hallway. They put him at a card table, literally a card table. He's sitting there with a little fisherman cap on. He's very tall and lanky kind of guy. And there was nobody at his table because there was a whole Lost in Space crowd, if I remember. And all these people were going to see the Lost in Space crew. And again, Amanda was very young. I think she was five or six. And I walked up and I'm like, Mr. Mayhew? He's like, yeah, Peter. Very nice guy. And uh, talked to him. Very humble. Super nice. I think he was a hospital orderly. That was like his job before. And uh, just very, very nice. And to see that and to see somebody who's so famous – and or plays a character that's so famous. Eventually, you get to know who he is, right? Because I'll take his picture. But but to see him humble and so kind, he'll sign anything you want. Very pleasant, you know, quiet and shy. I have to say that. And then to see Anthony Daniels is like, I don't know how big he is, but he weighed like a whole forty-seven pounds wet. I think very very small dude and uh, or, or skinny dude. And um, yeah, it was it, it was interesting. It was interesting to say the least. Hmm. 
But did you see, did you ever see they, they talked about when they were filming Star Wars and they had him out in the desert and that outfit, it was plastic. And they were talking about it was so hot out there. Like the plastic was like starting to melt some days. It was so hot. I'm like, I don't know how he did that. So you got to give him credit because he sat yeah, out in a plastic tin can for a while. Well, and the thing was, one of the other things that was in the article was how long it took him to walk with the C-3PO because it, that thing moved so slow. Oh, yeah. You know, so it would take, oh, yeah. you know, a really long time. And he said, yeah, he even he admitted that. You know, he was starting to get a little crabby at times, you know, making them. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. He had to, like, walk like a penguin almost to get from A to B. Yeah. Well, what's, what I always found kind of interesting that he talks about in the article, how he, he sort of, you know, he goes back and forth about wanting to be associated with Star Wars. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, of course, that's all we associate him with. And his character and R2-D2 are the only two characters to appear in every single Star Wars movie. Was he the, in every single one? Was he in every, it was him all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, you know, he he's in them all and, and their characters, are, you know, Lucas, whatever, wanted their characters to be throughout the whole thing. And, you know, Star Wars is based on a, a Kurosawa film called The Hidden Fortress. And there are two characters in The Hidden Fortress that keep getting wrapped up in all this stuff. They're these sort of these roguish uh peasant type guys and they, and they actually say that line i believe close to like what c3po says to r2d2 where it goes it, it seems our our lot in life is to suffer you know it seems to be our lot in life is to suffer they're also supposed to kind of be like laurel and hardy like that type of thing like the yes, comedic relief right. throughout the, the film as well but Look, it's laurel kind of, and hardy in tin can suits or something you know i think <laughs> No, that's uh, he, he, you know, not to knock him. My experience with him is probably not everyone's, and I'm sure he's had his days when he was probably more pleasant or not. But I remember if you got a line like that, I can understand you wanted to control, but just always a little. It was that was a little rude, especially you know he has that very um, rich English accent. You know, he's he's very well spoken. He's very theatrical, if you will. A little bit like that guy from Lost in Space. What's his name, Rich? <laughs> no, you bubble-headed booby. That guy. I don't yeah, you go back to your toy room of solitude. <laughs> no. He would have been a great C-3PO, I have to say. He no. I would have liked him as c I, I simply cannot disengage the tractor beam. My back is a mess. <laughs> Yeah, it would, it would. The movie would have been different if it, if it had been the Doctor Smith esque type character in that C three PO suit, right? Or, or they should just put Doctor Smith in instead of C three PO, and they should have put the robot from Lost in Space instead of R two D two. That would have been a right. hell of a Star Wars. Why wasn't Vincent Price C three PO? I would have made a perfect C three PO. George Lucas didn't Price call me. I would have been wonderful. Oh my god, he would have had to have a mustache on the robot. Like it has that thin mustache on the outside of the robot mask. That's written into all my contracts. I will not shave my mustache. The only time I did was when I was Dr. Phoebes. Fibes, I don't know how you pronounce it. Don't ask me. I just act in this track. But I was a skull no, face. That's... And then I wore a mask of myself over the skull face. <laughs> oh, my God. No robots in that film. Oh, there were. There were the TikTok band. They sort of played. There were, well, they were more of like a, a little... Music box type thing. Are well, music boxes robots? 
I'm sorry. We've gone off on a tangent, ladies and gentlemen. What is going on? I can't say we're that's so un, that's so unlike us. I mean, we're usually right on right on focus, I mean, right on track all the way, like like scripted or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, but uh, yeah, way. we slipped on we slipped down a, a, a wormhole here. <laughs> can you scream Sorry, con, folks, so if you're listening? Can, you know, can you scream con so we can link it to the last episode? <laughs> con <laughs> So what it was the consensus? Nobody here likes Anthony Daniels. I, I personally think he was rude, and I don't know many. I like C three PO. I like what right. he did with it, but as a person, yeah. I don't know. Maybe just caught him on a bad day, but he, he upset a lot of people. They were pissed. Yeah, I, I always enjoy me, seeing C three PO show up in the films. Yeah, and I I I, I got to be honest. I uh, you know I never met him. I've never gone to the you know the thing. But uh, yeah, the C three PO. I mean. Important part of Star Wars, the face of, you know, I mean, could be arguably the face of Star Wars, right? Yeah. As much as, you know, any of the other characters. And I yeah. think he did a good job in it. And it's obviously an important character. And uh, from from the article that I was reading, he seemed like, a, you know, I mean, I, I guess I, uh, how anybody w- would possibly be was, you know, aspirations of being a an actor, you know, and he kind of, you know, that that paid the bills. And, uh, you know, maybe he would have liked to do some other yeah, things. more than paid the bills, Max. That's right? been paying so, the bills for a while. He paid the bills for his great-grandkids. Oh, yeah. There you go. I mean, he's, he's, oh, yeah. Just, he's still doing it, right? Did he appear right. in any of the TV series, C-3PO? I haven't um, seen them all, but... He, Max said he was on the Donnie Marie show. I do I remember... Still... You know who else was on the Donnie Marie show? And I, I don't know if we, we, were we talking about him on or off mic. Chris Christopherson played the Han Solo role on the Donnie Chris and Marie Christopherson. show. Yeah, we said that. Because it was it was Chris Christopherson. Uh, Red Fox was on that episode. He was he was the. Uh, it's a, it's a terrible show. You can find it online. And of course, Lamont. Paul Lind, my Lamont, friend, you big dummy. <laughs> Paul <laughs> Lind, of course. Yeah, actually, uh, Star Wars Forces of something or other TV series, two episodes as C three PO. You know, I mean, all the Lego movies. Was he in the Incredible wow. Hulk? No. I just wanted to bring that up because I wanted Rich to start talking about the Lonely Guy <laughs> song or whatever it was. Do, 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 do. <laughs> do, 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 do. Hey, these are great cutouts. Where'd you get My them? dad has a girlfriend that he didn't tell me about. <laughs> Poor I Rich. I thought my mom and dad would get back together. <laughs> can't say Rich. But they won't. can't say he didn't have a heart. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> I got these. I, just call you Dan. I don't know why I called you. I don't Dan. know why you called me Dan. I See, I have a traumatic childhood memory. You should call me C3PO. That's what I think you should call me from here. <laughs> Wait, did, C3- just one last question. Did anybody did anybody here dress up as C3PO or Star Wars for Halloween as a kid? Anyone? Uh, I bought a I bought a Boba Fett costume when I was well out of the age of fitting into Ben Cooper costume. That's that's all right. And it was it came out before Empire Strikes Back. They released it. it must have been the season before because he, he had been on the the Thanksgiving Christmas special. Okay. In, a, in an animated version, I said, "Mom, I need to get this." She's like, you, "You're not going to fit into that." And I said, "No, I just want the mask because I want to make a Boba Fett costume. I'll, I'll wear the mask and I'll make." The, did you the make monster. a Boba Fett costume? I did not. I went out as the Wolfman that year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. That's good, but you don't, do you have a C three PO costume, Rich? 
I don't. <laughs> the only Star Wars what I have a I have a stormtrooper mask, and right. I have a Chewbacca costume, which is actually so if you, pretty. If cool. you want to see more of Rich's stuff, you can uh, go to Doctor Durant Sanctum on YouTube. And uh, Rich has a whole bunch of stuff up there for his costumes and stuff. You should get a C-3PO. I think now you are required to acquire a C-3PO costume. Yeah. You know, I fa- I've fallen out of love with Star Wars collecting. Like, thankfully, because there's so yeah. much to get. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking oh with some, some other stuff, you know. But do, do you have a con costume? I Jay. don't. I wish they make one. They didn't make one. They never made a con. Oh, they made they, made, they made a Kirk and Spock from Khan, but they did not make Ricardo Montalban. Wow, I did not know that. As a matter of fact, I'll be doing some costume episodes coming up soon. The the good Lord willing Halloween. for Halloween. So I've yes. got tons of new stuff that came in this year, and, and so much stuff I haven't even showcased that I'm. I, I could do hundreds of episodes. Uh, there's so many cool things I want to showcase. You should just do a million shorts on YouTube so you can do them all and get them all out there. Right. The YouTube shorts and get there you go. And, and you can find all of that great stuff on Dr. Durant's Sanctum channel on YouTube. The, the, the other guy, I know we're going off on a tangent, but the other guy that would have made a great C-3PO, of course, is Roddy McDowell. And oh, yeah, he would have been great. Dis, Disney figured that out, and they used him in the black hole as the voice of, of Vincent. Yes. Vincent! It all comes full circle. You see what we're doing here? We're yes, Andy. Yep. It's, it's perfect improv. Robots. Lots of robots. <laughs> all kinds of robots. We brought back Chris Christopherson, Robocop. Uh, Lost Robbie's, Robbie the Robot. Black Hole. Well, I can't wait to see. Can't wait for the next one. This is always a, a lot of fun. Uh, I'm Max Overnighter. I don't have a cool YouTube channel, but you'll find me stalking <laughs> all over all over Facebook. So if you see me, please stop by say. Yeah, I well I have a YouTube channel, but it's not cool either. So you can find me on the My Meagle Like YouTube channel or on the Facebook group Meagle Like, which we have a lot of discussion on many, many, many topics. And Max has the current Guinness Book of World Records for the most lives in one year. And I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant. You can find me on YouTube as these two fine gentlemen <laughs> and I always live by the motto, let the Wookiee win. <laughs> this is Star Wars comic book artist Al Milgram, and you are listening to Star Pod Log, the classic science fiction and fantasy podcast. Starlog Preview, Howard Katzen Gian. The producer of Return of the Jedi discusses the latest Star Wars saga and the startling secrets involved in this latest voyage to a galaxy far, far away. Alright, so I get to share a memory about this particular issue of Starlog magazine. I was so excited when I got this. I got this at the Amity Newsstand, New Haven, Connecticut, just on the edge of Woodbridge, because my grandfather lived in Woodbridge. We'd go over his house on the weekends. He picked my brother and up and I from school. We go to Bonanza, get the 99-cent child plate, and we go pick up a comic book at the newsstand. But boy, when I saw this cover, it showed Han, Luke, Leia, Chewie, and C-3PO, and it was a scene from Return of the Jedi. There, especially Leia, was wearing this unique green poncho. I had to find out more about this. I was so excited. Now, normally, he bought me a comic book, 
probably if I had a good report card or something, I'd get Starlog. Oftentimes, I had to read Starlog in the newsstand. I couldn't own it. Like you had a subscription. Yeah, I got it in the mail for a while. That was nice. So, I, I mean, I lived where it was hard to find. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we both had our struggles in obtaining Starlog. Well, I got this issue, and I was super excited because it previewed all different scenes from Return of the Jedi. I mean, the, the pictures in here show a Gamorrean guard. It shows the Emperor's Royal Guards. So we had new Empire figures in here. It showed the scene on Endor. Which was, wow, I can't imagine. I'm so excited. My brother and I were so excited about having this issue. Well, when I brought it to school, it was me, my buddy Matthew, and this kid, Dennis, was looking over this article about the secrets of Return to the Jedi. And this kid, Dennis, said, you know, I heard, and he was sending all these rumors. And we're like, man, Dennis, you didn't even read this article in Starlog, and you're hearing these rumors. And it made me think, like looking back at that, how, without magazines like Starlog, how did rumor mills spread without the Internet? I mean, somehow they did. <laughs> I mean, everybody was talking about the possibility of it really being Luke's father, that being Darth Vader, because some of us are saying, like, ah, maybe he was just saying that to throw Luke off. But this kid, Dennis, said, no, I heard that Luke and Leia are brother and sister. We're like, where did you hear this? I don't know. We were just so surprised. And here's the big story about us reading this issue. We were, we were talking about it. And I had this teacher, Miss Oates. <sighs> she told us, she said, okay, boys, you've had enough of the thing, of that magazine. Put the magazine away. We're going to go into our lesson. And I said something to the effect like, like, oh, Miss Oates, okay, whatever I said back to her. She said, what's my name? And I said, uh, Miss Oates. She went to the board. She wrote M-R-S, and then M-I-S-S, and then M-S. And she pointed to the top one. She said, what does Mrs. mean? I said, uh, mean, major married. She said, correct. What does Miss mean? I said, it means you're not married. And she said, correct. Now I'm sitting there holding this Starlog magazine, thinking to myself, what does this have to do with Return of the Jedi? I don't get it. And then she pointed to MS, and she said, what does this mean? I said, uh, means like you may or may not be married. She goes, it means it's none of your business. My name is Ms. Oates. So what does that mean? I said, well, you're not married. No, it means none of your business. I go by Ms. Oates. And I'm like, um, but we all know that you're not married. She goes, that's none of your business. <laughs> I mean, she's going tit for tat with a kid like, I don't care. I, uh, why are you attacking me like this? And I said, but you're not married. She just slammed down some paper. She goes, it is none of your business. And I'm just sitting there confused, saying, uh, can we just end this stupid thing? I want to read my star log. And she may put the star log away. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this whole none of your business thing is getting out of hand. Like, why is she freaking out over this? So that altercation is forever embedded in my mind with this issue of star log. 
Okay, yeah, you associate that even though it, it really had nothing to do with Starlock. Because, because she cut off had... our awesome conversation yeah. about Return of the Jedi rumors. <laughs> yeah, teacher getting all out of whack over something like that. And it's, yeah. And I mean, you know, it's a, a lot of single women sort of like resent being single. So I'm sure it had to do with that. But that's another issue. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, not my problem. I'm just trying to figure out all these secrets from Return of the Jedi, which this article talks about how the, the, the steps that they went through to keep things secret, because here's an interesting passage in here, is that one of the reasons why George wanted to keep everything so secret is because he was afraid that people were going to steal some of his ideas, and he'd be watching TV one day and watch his ideas on the screen at some, someone else's studio. So intellectual property theft, was a real concern. Like if someone else stole his idea before the movie came out and then they did it first, then people would think he's the one who stole it. Of course. Yeah, exactly. It goes to say that this ball got rolling for Return of the Jedi in 1981. They, They knew that Empire was a hit and they had to come up with something else past that. Uh, and to develop the story further. So with regards to characters, storyboards, the production crew hid behind the phony film title Blue Harvest, which has since become a joke among fans. And to this day, we see references to Blue Harvest. Even the Northeast Star Wars Collectors Club, their logo was based on Blue Harvest. And this is, but at this time, this was just deep information. This is what we wanted as Star Wars fans to to find out details like this. It also goes down to say that things that they had established that even though that the producers, George Lucas, director, they were in different parts of the world, I love this. We knew when Johnny Williams would score it. <laughs> when do you ever hear John Williams being referred to as Johnny Williams? <laughs> yeah, I've never heard it. <laughs> and they wanted ILM to be involved in this. But ILM took on three other projects, Star Trek II, E.T., and Poltergeist, with a little bit of the Dark Crystal and a little of the Winds of war miniseries that's why they didn't have time for conan so ilm was supposed to be slotted for conan but they were too backed up with work everybody wanted ilm's special effects involved in their films and rightfully so interesting tidbit the article goes on to say that they've asked fans do you want to know who darth vader is and the fans would say no they all want to know little secrets so they could tell somebody something that their friends don't know, but not everything. There were only three full scripts in existence. All of our actors, even David Prowse, only received their section of the script. Now, I think that's a curiosity that fans were saying they don't want to know everything. Because in this day and age, with the internet, fans want to know every little thing to the, to the point where it's annoying. Yeah, that is strange. Like, it was a different uh, mindset back then. All of us wanted to be surprised to a little bit. We wanted some rumors, but the problem is with social media, you have people that desperately seek attention, and they want to be the first to post the information. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. people hear rumors or start rumors, and they post them, and... And then, and that's why you can't trust everything you see because you don't know if it's, if it's really true or not. Arkel goes on to say to keep everyone, including the cast and crews guessing, false lines of dialogue have been sprinkled throughout different portions of the screenplay. 
During Empire's filming, Prowse read entirely different lines in the scene in which he reveals to Luke that he is the young Jedi's father. In this latest film, the most explosive secret is, who is the other? Obviously, the other must come out in the dialogue. We only have five people film it, and those five people might only know that one secret and not know any others. Yeah, it's like they were really afraid that people would would tell somebody, like tell the press something that was going to happen. So they just only let people know the part of their job. That's it. Even the film crew had to be excused for some of those scenes. Yeah, amazing. Like, Yeah, very tight security. Again, reading this article again brings me back to that time. Sitting at the table with other of my classmates saying, this is so amazing that we still have some little pieces of information, some behind the scenes of how this is being made, how they keep these secrets. I never heard any rumors, but I'm glad I didn't because I enjoyed watching the movie. Hi, this is Gil Gerard. I played Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Cavora's beautiful. And you're listening to Star Pod Log. Now let's do our DragonCon recap. We had an awesome time at DragonCon 2023. In fact, this is the first time that since we've been going to DragonCon together, we stayed at a non-host hotel. It was a different experience, but I'm telling you what, it was an enjoyable experience. We were still in walking distance of the con, so that was good. And it, it was a nice hotel, and we didn't have to worry about taking the elevator. I mean, it wasn't crowded getting on the elevator. You don't have to go up to go down and stuff like that. Exactly. And the con had uh, the the hotel had tons of other Dragon Con attendees there as well. So it's not like we were alone not doing anything. We stayed at the Candler Hilton Hotel, which is a block past the Westin. So it was close to the Westin to the America's Mart, easy access to those portions of the ho- of, of the con. Yeah, it turned out to be a good choice. And you loved your espressos every morning? Um, yeah, there there was an espresso machine in the room, so that, that was nice. <laughs> Previously, we never had that at a host hotel at Dragon Con. But let's talk about the con itself. Epic. I mean, I think that the con just gets better and better every year with regard to crowd control. They kept the membership at 70000 so it was, again, you know, still crowded, but but not too crowded. Not mayhem, not pre-COVID. Like, there was a point pre-COVID where I said, I'm not going to go to the Marriott on a Saturday night anymore. Right. I mean, this time it was, you could still get around, even though even though it was crowded, you, you were still able to, to walk from one place to the other. Mm-hmm. First time ever getting involved in Erin Gray's Tai Chi class. Yeah, she does a Tai Chi workshop every year. In fact, she does about... She does about uh, she does it three times I think at, at every Dragon Con. So we took one of her classes. We had fun. It was it was a nice serene setting. You know, it was in a quiet room, and the room had you know ju- it was just big enough for the number of people that were there. I know they they limit how many they sell so that the room won't be too crowded. And she is know. a wonderful person. When you get because we got the chance to talk to her and get to know her better too. She really is such a kind-hearted soul. Yeah, she she stopped several years ago doing actual panels at Dragon Con. Now she only does these Tai Chi workshops, but that's fine. I mean, you know, she does stay and talk to people after the class. She said this is her passion. She loves inspiring others to better themselves. And having a background in yoga helped out immensely. That's my background. I've never done Tai Chi before. 
Um, I've dipped into one or two classes at the Y, but my mind wasn't really focused on it. It was just too foreign, too different for me uh, at the time I did try it. Whereas now her teaching methods were so patient and her she explained every move. And I think that's anytime you take any kind of mind-body health course, it all depends on the teacher if you latch on to it at all. And she was exceptional. I like how she broke down the moves and she... She she did it repetitively. She You would do something and do it, you know, you start in the back of the room and walk forward. You're doing this move as you walk forward, and you're doing the same thing to the right, left, to the right, to the left, and and going forward. And, th- and that was nice to get a, a good feel for it. I would highly recommend any anyone attending her classes like that. Uh, what did she say to me at the end of the class, though, that that was pretty amusing? So you were talking to her after class, and I know you were telling her that you, you've got a you know, a problem with bad back and bad knees and all. And and then she said, you need to lose weight. And she poked you in the belly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we know, we know, I know. Yeah, great class. I enjoyed that very much, though. We know every year the Hilton actually has a theme in their hotel for their atrium. This year's theme, Super Mario. Yeah, that was neat. See, they had the little, uh, all the signs all over the place and the um, and the backgrounds where you could take a picture. It was pretty cool. Yeah, you, you were like immersed in Nintendo World when you went to the Hilton. And our friends over at the Interfleet Broadcasting Podcast, they had a special panel talking about their new Battlestar Galactica fan film. Released the trailer for it. Make sure we're going to put a link in our show notes. Follow them if you're into Battlestar Galactica, classic sci-fi, the IFB, Interfleet Broadcasting. That's one of my favorite things at DragonCon. Probably my favorite thing are the fan panels. There are fans out there that are so specialized, so knowledgeable about their fandom that they're able to give panels. And you walk away just knowing more. That IFB panel was at the military sci-fi track. And, of course, we attend the American Sci-Fi Classics track. We saw a panel on Superman the movie, and uh, it was pretty cool. It was a fan discussion panel. Yeah, we're looking at an anniversary year, 45-year anniversary of that movie. And to this day, I believe that a man can fly. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Reeve just made that movie. So so the first one with him, which they talked about how it um, it just changed the way they made superhero movies after that. And and even though there were other, you know, popular movies like Batman, I mean, Super- Superman is, is still the most popular one. Yeah, he's incredible. Just thinking about how superhero movies forever changed after 1978. And I went to some of the celebrity panels, too. They had, you know, actually, so, th- so they had actors from Eureka this year, which I thought was strange because it's not, it's not one of those anniversary years for Eureka. But um, but it was good, and they actually had a few actors from there that they haven't had at Dragon Con. So, but but it was neat, and and also, well, they had Bab- Babylon Five actors there. They had Claudia Christian and Tracy Scoggins, and it was interesting that Tracy Scoggins mentioned Eureka because she said that um in her hometown in Texas, she she said it's really like the town of Eureka because because it's. You know, they've got a, a branch of NASA in Texas, and so there were a lot of um, smart people there, a lot, a lot of geniuses there, like, like on Eureka. Uh, and they also had, there was a Firefly panel that I went to that had um, some of the actors from that show. And uh, it, it's always nice seeing them. They, and I know they love Dragon Con. They keep coming back. And The Firefly fan, fandom is huge. 
That's right. I mean, the, yeah, these actors keep coming back, and their their panels are always full. And yeah. we're talking about these are huge ballrooms too. These are not like little rooms. Firefly fandom has some of the most passionate, diehard fans for a series that wasn't even one season long. That that's why I find that so impressive. Definitely. Oh, and and Marty Croft was there, uh, the the um, maker of kids Saturday morning TV shows. Sigmund the Sea Monster. I mean, you want to talk about a staple of 70s children's programming? Marty Croft. Yeah, it was great to see him. You know, he also did the the Marty Croft, well, the Marty Croft Super Show, as they called it, with um, uh, the show that had Electro Woman and Dinah Girl. And and then and then he also did the Donnie and Marie show, which was the the first seventies or the first uh, variety show of its time, having having musical musicals and comedy skits. That was his first foray into prime time. Yeah, great time at Dragon Con. It was so exciting to see so many of our listeners there. We look forward to next year's adventure. Burger King presents Return of the Jedi Glasses. Four new glasses from the Star Wars saga. Filled with the adventures of Luke Skywalker. The Ewoks. Han Solo. And Jabba the Hutt. Buy a medium or large coat. And a different glass is yours each week for a special price. Collect all four. Return of the Jedi Glasses. Now appearing only at Burger King. Crazy Eddie wants to give you the gift of music with record and tape prices so low he's practically giving it all away. It's Crazy Eddie's greatest record and tape asylum super sale ever. Now, Crazy Eddie offers you good sound advice with super high quality, low noise, 60 minute cassettes from tracks. And Crazy Eddie's got not one, not two, but three 60 minute cassettes for $1.99 at Crazy Eddie's record and tape asylums. So give the gift of music with a record or tape from Crazy Eddie because his record prices are insane too. In the eerie world of deep, dark dungeons, mystery and magic seem real. There's good against evil with advanced Dungeons and Dragons action figures. War Duke, Kellogg, Strongheart, and Bronze Dragon, each sold separately. Beware, Strongheart. You will cast an evil spell and steal the treasure. Whoa, evil is no match for good. The treasure is safe. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons action figures. Kellogg, War Duke, Bronze Dragon, Strongheart, each sold separately from LJN. Starlog Magazine, issue number 70, cover date, May 1983. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine, thoughts on Jedi. From Steve Oglesby in Kentucky, have you heard anything about Princess Leia dying in Return of the Jedi? A trailer for the film showed Leia falling down a trap door of some kind. Carrie Fisher said in a recent interview that this was the end of Star Wars for her. I know none of the original characters are going to be in the next sequel, but I expected them in the future films. If Princess Leia dies, it will be unforgivable, and I refuse to see Jedi as many times as I've seen Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> uh, but then they did say later on that they were toying with the idea of making prequels. Yeah, and then no. sequels, right? <laughs> like that. Previously in Starlog, they said they were going to bounce around with it, but they just give it a little break, but not a long break, like like the real world break. But it's still funny though, because Carrie Fisher probably did say that was the end of Star Wars for her. She didn't know she would come back. Yeah.
blog entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. The Youngest Jedi Master In Starlog number 65, we spotlighted Star Wars fan Joe Copeland, who worked as Mark Hamill's stand-in for the Arizona shooting of Return of the Jedi. However, Joe isn't the only fan to gain a professional association with George Lucas's legendary space adventure. At the age of 12, Rusty Miller is the youngest author to see his Star Wars book, The Jedi Master's Quiz Book, published and stocked on the bookstore shelves nationwide. I had this book. I got it at a Scholastic Book Fair. So a 12-year-old wrote that book? I loved it. I was just like, I couldn't believe it, yeah. And I remember a teacher saying, like, wow, a 12-year-old is making a book. Like, it was it was a big deal. It was enough that educators, like, viewed that as inspiration for other kids. Wow. Monopoly Playmaster Stumps Stars. When it came time for Parker Brothers to introduce their new electronic Monopoly Playmaster game, they searched for three sportsmen to test their medal against a true Monopoly champion. So, last August, in New York's FAO Schwartz Toy Store, 11-year-old Paul Bosco found himself confronting New York Mets outfielder Rusty Staub, Boston Celtics coach Red Auerbach, and North American Soccer League president Howard Samuels. So this kid won a tournament, a Monopoly championship, which... (laughs) It's just one of those things. I mean, Monopoly is one of those games where you're you're you roll and move, roll and move, roll and move. Hey, they hyped up this game enough where it got a lot of attention. It got free publicity in Starlog magazine. It's still on toy shelves for a reason. There's people that buy Monopoly and people that love it. Well, it's a classic game, and now they have other versions of it too. The Star Wars Monopoly and there's things like every that. single yeah. IP that you could ever think of has Monopoly. It's crazy when you think about it. Conan joins the tour. Conan is no longer an orphan. Universal Studios has solidified its commitment to the barbarian hero and his cinematic tales, adding an Adventures of Conan attraction to its Hollywood studio tour, the $3 million production, which replaces the Castle of Dracula makeup set, is said to be the most ambitious project ever undertaken at the Universal City lot, under construction since January, the multimedia Conan show premieres June 18th. And my family saw it. It was amazing. It did not follow the story of the comics or even the movie. It was truly its own creation as far as the origins of Conan, picking up a sword and just magically becoming larger than life with regards to his muscular stature. But it was exciting. It was fun. It, it, Universal Studios was like the place to be in the 80s. I, I loved it so much. The, the California one especially. Those tram rides where you go behind the scenes, they were two hours long. You got to go into the studios. You got to see some amazing things. And this just added to it. Sounds like so much fun. Now, now how many times did you go to Universal? Oh, we went many times because we had family in, in Costa Mesa, which is Orange County. So we'd, we would stay with them. And then go to Disneyland and Universal Studios, Knott's Berry Farm. Do you like 50s sci-fi movies? Do you like the 50s sci-fi TV shows? Would you like to learn more about the 50s science fiction literature? 
Look no further than my show, 1950s Science Fiction Podcast. During each episode, I'll explore a different media topic, from drive-in sci-fi movies to classic sci-fi stories, comics to monster movies and radio dramas to short stories. The 1950s Science Fiction Podcast is available on many platforms. Please feel free to tune in and listen to the show. Hey gang, Jim Hild here. I'm entertainment writer who's been covering the Walt Disney Company for nearly 40 years now. Maybe you've heard of the podcast I do with Lentesta, Disney Dish. He and I have our first ever video series, Disney Unpacked, popping up on Patreon shortly. More on that later. Because I'm an old fart, I remember when the real Starlog magazine, back when it showed up monthly on newsstands, and given that I loved its coverage of sci-fi and fantasy, not just movies and TV shows, but also books and theme park attractions, I have to say it kind of broke my heart when Starlog magazine ceased publication back in April of 2009. A series of articles that ran in this magazine from March of 1983 through May of that same year. And if you want to read along, I'm talking about issues 68, 69, and 70. This trio of pieces were written by David Hutchinson, who had a long-time association with Starlog. Uh, he started as a production assistant at this publication, uh, eventually began writing articles for the magazine, and over time rose to become science editor at Starlog. But back in the early, early days of this magazine, staffers were looking for specific beats that, that they could cover, turf that, as a writer, they could claim as their own. And as far as David Hutchinson was concerned, theme parks were his beat. Uh, a quick aside here, Hutch, uh, as uh, friends called David, also had a passion for 3D film. So when George Lucas collaborated with the Imagineers to create Captain EO for the Disney theme parks back in 86... Hutch was in hog heaven. All of his loves, his accessions coming together in one big project. Uh, FYI, you can read Hutch's great article about this Disney theme park attraction, Into the Third Dimension with Captain EO, in the summer of 1987 issue of Cinemagic by Starlog. Hey, hey, do any of you Star Podlog listeners remember that? Back when Starlog actually had its own spin-off magazine? Hutch covered the grand opening of Epcot Center, which happened back in October of 1982, and Hutch was lucky enough to be the reporter on scene for Starlog as Walt Disney World's second theme park first threw open its gates. And David, he was a very smart writer. He knew Starlog readers were going to want to know what it was like to be invited to a massive media event like this, which is why part one of Welcome to Epcot Center that's the overarching title of this series, with its subtitle being A Walking Tour, starts off with this fun, if somewhat florid, passage. From the time the letter arrived in its gold-embossed envelope to the moment I boarded the Eastern Jet in New York and finally touched on Orlando, I was holding my breath. Or at least it felt that way. I remember a sharp intake of breath just before Labor Day when the letter arrived from Epcot Center at Walt Disney World inviting me to spend a few days in October covering the opening ceremonies of Disney's new billion-dollar permanent World's Fair of the Imagination. 
And I remember an equally sharp release of air. It must have been an explosion of long pent-up anticipation on the evening of October 19th when the young Disney employee who picked me up at the Orlando airport drove me by the night-lit, glistening 17-story geosphere that marks the entrance of Epcot Center. Okay, so the opening of part one of this series is a teensy bit overridden. But look, there's no denying that you feel David Hutchinson's excitement when it comes to being a member of the working press who was lucky enough to score an invite to the grand opening of Epcot Center. Mind you, Hutch earned that invite. As a writer for both Starlog and Future Life magazine, he'd been covering the development of Epcot Center for a number of years at this point. Here's another excerpt from part one of the series. I recall a tour of WED, the Disney Design and Development Organization. That was where WED executives, Marty Scalar and John Hench, were trying to get across to me what, what Epcot was all about. I, I, there are a lot of things that Epcot Center isn't. It is not a series of answers to today's problems. It doesn't purport to show the way. Nor was it intended to do any of these things. The purpose of Epcot is to entertain, but in a very special way. Now, there's a reason that Hutch uses this tack when writing about Epcot Center, because uh, back in 82, there were still a number of people, myself included, who, when they heard the name Epcot, immediately thought of that futuristic city that Walt Disney once said he was going to build out in the swamps of central Florida. That was what the acronym for Epcot actually stood for. Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, not as some wags today like to say about Epcot, the theme park, which is Epcot stands for every person comes out tired. Anyway, that's why Marty and John were talking to David in that way. They were looking to change the narrative out ahead of the opening of Epcot, the theme park. Now let's get back to Hutch's article and what this new version of Epcot, the one that's not a city, was supposed to do. The purpose of Epcot Center is to entertain, but in a special way. It is designed to thrill that most thrillable of sense of all, your imagination. In fact, there's even a pavilion devoted entirely to imagination. It's right there next to the land pavilion. Mind you, uh, when it came to Epcot's Imagination Pavilion, David is quick to point out that some weeks ago, WED designer Tony Baxter had warned me that the ride portion of Imagination would not open till mid-December. And Baxter, if we're being truthful here, a little optimistic. Truth be told, Epcot's Journey into Imagination ride wouldn't open to the public till some three and a half months after the time frame Tony shared with Hutch, uh, the SeaWorld attraction didn't begin operations till March 3rd of 1983, nearly six months after David covered the grand opening of this theme park. Hutch does a great job of putting the reader right on the ground with him at Epcot's grand opening. In this three-part article, he talks about you know how just to the right of the park's main entrance is a small gift shop. This is the secret entrance, says Howard Green, a publicist who'd been imported from Disney Studios out in L.A. to help out with Epcot's opening ceremony. 
passing behind the sales counter at this gift shop and then opening up a door. I was amazed to see a battery of tables, telephones and typewriters, urns of coffee, stacks of mimeoed press releases, and a wall covered with numbered black and white photographs. Uh, if we hurry, Howard says, we can beat the crowds to Spaceship Earth. This kind of introduces a running gag uh, to Hutch's Welcome to Epcot Center series. Because try as he may, David just can't get onto this theme park's thesis attraction. Night or day, the line to get on Spaceship Earth is just far too long. The payoff to this gag comes in the third and final installment of the Starlog series. Which is when, after David has just exited the American Adventure, he runs into Howard Green again. Only this time, Howard is accompanied by, eh, I'll let Hutch describe this individual, a very familiar-looking, white-haired, suntan gentleman in a wonderful ice cream suit. Yep, you guessed it, folks. Howard is taking famed author Ray Bradbury around Epcot Center, and seeing as Ray actually worked on the original concept for Spaceship Earth, it kind of makes sense that Bradbury would be there for the opening of, of Walt Disney World's second theme park. It's at this point that Green notices Hutchinson and says, Oh, hey, hi, Dave. I was just taking Ray over to see Spaceship Earth. Have you seen it yet? Uh, no, Hutch says. Uh, the lines have been too long. Well, uh, you're welcome to join us. Uh, you know Ray Bradbury, don't you? I'll take us in through the VIP entrance so you don't have to wait in the line. So Hutch gets to experience Spaceship Earth with the famed sci-fi fantasy writer that helped the Imagineers create Epcot's thesis attraction, which, you have to admit, would have been a thrill to any Starlog reader. But then Hutch does a very interesting thing. He shares the story of how Ray Bradbury actually got to Epcot Center for this theme park's grand opening, which was harder than you might think because, well... Ray Bradbury doesn't like to fly. So getting him to Florida on time took some doing. Here's what David shared with his readers. I asked how Ray had enjoyed his trip to Orlando from his home in Los Angeles. Ray closed his eyes in a brief moment of remembered anguish. It wasn't a good trip, Howard volunteered. It seemed that Ray took the train from Los Angeles to New Orleans and then was chauffeured into Orlando Ray doesn't drive, either. The trip up to Orlando involved quite a bit of car trouble. It was not a pleasant experience. Ray equated it to traveling by covered wagon. I love how David shared that bit of behind-the-scenes gossip, but at the same time, Hutch was a serious journalist, and even though Disney flew him down to Epcot Center's grand opening on their dime, David wasn't one to pull his punches if he saw something he didn't like, and when Walt Disney World's theme park came up short, he let Starlog readers know about it. Case in point, the boat ride at the Mexico Pavilion. In part two of this series, Hutch describes how this this World Showcase attraction is... Eh, there is this boat ride journey through a series of exhibits that examines Mexico's colorful heritage and attractions. I'm not impressed. There's a nice fiber optic fireworks display, but on a whole, it's really a journey through a, a chamber of commerce brochure, unspectacular and somewhat perfunctory. On the other hand, Hutch describes something that he accidentally came across at Epcot Center that 
in fact, did impress him, uh, something that he stumbled upon during his very last night at the park. So picture this. David has just enjoyed a farewell dinner in the beer garden at the German Pavilion. And as he's walking around Wolschoka as to head back towards Spaceship Earth and the Steam Park's exit, I, well, uh, this is what he saw. I, walking back towards Future World, I, I see a number of barges being towed out into the middle of the lagoon. A, a guard informs me that after the park closes, a rehearsal will be held for a fire and light show that opens in a few days, something that will eventually become a regular nighttime event at Epcot. What David is describing here is Carnival de Lumiere, the very first nighttime spectacular to be presented out on World Showcase Lagoon. This great-grandfather, if you will, of illuminations, or, or Luminous, the next generation of nighttime spectaculars, which will debut on, out on World Showcase Lagoon in just a few months, and on December 5th, in fact, Hutch goes on to say, it's already after 11, so I resolved to, to sit it out. Soon, thousands are streaming toward the exits, until only a few hundred are left, the lucky few, who get a little preview. A number of large rear-projection screens float on barges in the lagoon, and soon, with a burst of music and light, the show begins. Great works of art and foreign scenes are rear-projected onto the floating screens, while light and fireworks are triggered in time to the music. This rehearsal is not without its problems, but, but, but that's what rehearsals are for. I just wish I could be here a few days hence to see this show in all its glory. But David can't stay. He's due at Orlando Airport early the following morning to catch an eastern flight back to New York City, where he will then get started with translating all of those notes he took down at Disney World and get started on writing this three-part series for Starlog Magazine. I wish I could thank David personally for doing such a good job with Welcome to Epcot Center, because with this trio of stories, he really does a great job of capturing what this theme park was like straight out of the box in its early, early days. Sadly, we lost Hutch back in uh, May of 2000 uh, after a six-month long battle with pancreatic cancer. But then again, David, it's not really gone. As long as we still have all of those great stories that he wrote for Future Life magazine and Cinemagic and, of course, Starlog. Which then reminded me why I love Starlog magazine in the first place. By the way, if you like these sorts of behind-the-scenes stories about Disney theme parks, be sure and check out Lentesta and my newest project, which is Disney Unpacked, our first ever video series. On Disney Unpacked, Len and I have teamed with longtime Imagineer Jim Shule. He's the very talented gentleman behind some of your favorite attractions at the Disney park, uh, rides like Rock and Roller Coaster and Mater's Junkyard Jamboree. Not to mention whole lands for the park, like Mickey's Toontown or, or, or Toy Story Land. If you like to hear the sorts of behind-the-scenes stories that only a veteran Imagineer can tell, not to mention checking out the nearly 100,000 photos that Mr. Schull took over his over 30-year career at Disney, be sure and check out Disney Unpack. 
Hey there, intrepid adventurers. Do you suck at Dungeons and Dragons? Well, of course I do. Everybody does until they listen to Honor Roll Podcast. That's right. I'm Ryan. I'm the curmudgeon. I'm Carrie, the legend. And I'm Jason, the favorite, also the one with the most dog hair on his feet. And we all host the Honor Roll Podcast, where we talk about tabletop role-playing games. We talk about mushing. We talk about LARPs. And we talk about everything everything in between. We also sometimes say things in unison. (laughs) That's right. Hey, what's the only way to win at a role-playing game? The only way to win at a role-playing game is... To, to have, have fun. I was going to say, listen to Honor Roll Podcast. You can find the Honor Roll Podcast at honorrollpodcast.com or on iTunes or any other place that your favorite podcasts are at. Aww. Right? We're also where some of your least favorite podcasts are at. I can only imagine. Who listens to least favorite podcasts? Not us. Not Don't, us. You shouldn't either. You should totally listen to the Honor Roll, Roll Podcast. Podcast. That's oh. right. Wow. Because Great. we talk about role-playing games. And how to be better at them. Bye. 1983. This is the year I started to call myself a music fan because, I've said it before, I grew up in a household that didn't listen to new music. My parents listened to the oldie station. And with the tradition of the time, when my father was driving, he was king of the radio. When my mother was driving, she was queen of the radio. We had very little to contribute to choices. We just sat there and listened. But when MTV became available in most households... Wow, this totally changed my perception of current music. What about you? Yeah, so 1983 was a great year for music. Um, I At that time, I mean, I was already a music fan because I was watching Solid Gold, which was my show. The thing is, we because where I lived, we our cable company didn't offer MTV yet, so I had MTV later. Oh, but I did watch, there were other TV shows that showed videos because there was Night Tracks and America's Top Ten. So I got to see a lot of videos and, and yeah, there, there were a lot of current songs that I liked. And, and of course, and my parents also didn't listen to current music. They didn't like any of it. Um, and my brother who had already moved out of the house, but yeah, he, he liked this music. So he had his good music collection too. So we definitely shared our songs with each other. And the amazing thing that I found out years later is people in the South had cable TV way sooner than people in New England. It was like, Part of, but by 1983, you already had cable for years. I did. Uh, yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, I was in a small town and, and there was nothing else to do but watch TV. That could be the reason. But. We got cable TV, I believe, in 1982. Most people that we knew did not have cable TV. Like, my dad got it strictly because he heard he could watch Red Sox games clearly all the time and watch games in other markets as well. That That's how... The Braves became America's team. If you had cable TV, you could watch Braves games. That was unheard of before cable. Yeah, yeah, and my parents were were into the Braves too. They and they um and definitely like like years later getting a satellite dish and they changed uh you know their satellite service just so they could watch more uh baseball. So yeah, getting get getting this this service because of sports was also a big thing. It's a huge huge selling point. But when it came to cable, my brother and I, we wanted our MTV. And one of the things that spurred this whole movement of heavy metal were like the more accessible bands. Bands that were not super heavy, but just a little bit heavier than mainstream rock. And a very popular video was Quiet Riot's Metal Health. I even remember my brother in art class making a clay mask to put on. It was a big deal. What were some of the other songs that you liked from 1983? 
You know, it's funny because I w- as I was looking at, at a list of, of, like, these are supposed to be songs just from 83. This looks like all the 80s songs. I mean, it's, <laughs> it was a hardcore year. And it was also the year of Flashdance. So, like, Huge a lot of great hit. songs. Huge from, hit. Yeah. yeah. Great Multiple songs, songs. From Maniac the, came off of that Flashdance soundtrack. Yes. Maniac and, and Flashdance. And, of course, Total Eclipse of the Heart. I loved that song. And and also Far From Over, the one by Frank Stallone. I mean, that was one of my Sly favorite Stallone's songs, too. brother. Yeah, yeah. Were you an Arrhythmics fan? Yes, I loved I Arrhythmics. I loved Sweet Dreams. Yes, they, they were they were great. And, you know, Annie Lennox was such a good singer, yeah. Now, were you a fan of Def Leppard? Um, some, yeah. I mean, because I wasn't as much into heavy metal like you were. Well, this is the year that Pyromania came out. But they changed their sound a couple years later. That album was amazing. Again, going back to that satanic panic, when that video came on with Unta Gleaton, Glotten, Gloten, I remember my aunt saying, whoa, this is demonic. Who knows what he's saying? Yeah, I heard people say that, yeah. But what? but but it was like they were they were feeding into the, the fear by, by doing that. It it was. It was it was like Planting in a suggestion, and all of a sudden that suggestion becomes a reality because you want to believe it. Yes. We're fans of Stranger Things, and we notice that back patch on Eddie's back. Dio, Holy Diver, this is the year when Dio was super popular. He left Black Sabbath to go on his own. It's amazing going to conventions and seeing kids wearing these Dio back patches now. Yeah, seeing kids wear them. So, yeah, and hopefully the kids are actually listening to the music from the 80s. How is my culture a costume? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Because <laughs> I love those back patches. You Twi- mean you had one of those patches back then? Of course. The first back patch I ever got was Twisted Sister. In fact, this is the year the Twisted Sisters You Can't Stop Rock and Roll came out. Iron Maiden, Peace of Mind, one of my favorite bands of all time. That's the album that produced the single The Trooper. What about Journey? Frontiers came out with the single Separate Ways. Yeah, I love that song. Remember the video? Them just pulsating towards the screen? It was like a real rudimentary video. It probably cost $6.26 to make. Well, there were a lot of videos like that back then, too. And they were still good, though. They were still entertaining. Well, the the music was good. I think the music is really what made it. And, and, you know, and what I loved was the, uh, the dance songs, the powerful electronic music, and the... Yeah, like like so this a lot of the stuff that was that was danceable is what I liked. Kind of like Donna Summer, she works hard for the money. Yeah, that was great. That was a good too. song. U2's War album came out that year. Huge hit with the Police, with the Synchronicity album. A lot of singles off of that. Were you a fan of Every Breath You Take? Yeah, that was a cool song. Who wasn't? I mean, Sting was at top of his game. And you remember Mr. Roboto? Oh, by Sticks. By Sticks. Of course. It's awesome. Yeah, it was. What about Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue? Yeah, that was a cool song. I mean, growing up around New Haven, the kids in our class made up a version of it. We're going to rock down to Congress Avenue, and then they steal your tires. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny. And these, you know, the songs back then had such catchy tunes. They had these hooks, you know, and and that, that was just another thing. Like, you could just sing them all the time. Oh, no doubt about it. And this was the era where keyboards were being introduced more and more, little by little. Speaking of which, David Bowie's Let's Dance album, lots of singles off of that. Huge Bowie fan during this time period. He had a lot of good songs, too. What about Talking Heads, Burning Down the House? Yeah, loved it. Again, a video that had some strangeness to it. Imagery. 
things that just made you say, I want to watch more of this because it's so strange. Every time I get into the car, I hear some of these songs still when I, when you were driving the car. <laughs> well, yeah, I still listen to 80s music. You still got yeah. your head locked in the era. <laughs> and, and because, you know, I liked a lot of a lot of female singers. So, yeah, definitely. Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon came out that year. Woo, that was a scary video for me. Him turning into a werewolf. Again, we're going back to that satanic panic. And Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. That was the first heavy metal t-shirt I ever had. My grandfather bought it for me. And I had a Shout at the Devil poster. It lasted exactly 6.2 hours. I remember my father coming in my room and saying, Shout at the Devil? Whoa, not in this house. (laughs) And I was saying, Dad, it says Shout at the Devil, not Shout with the Devil. You know, like, kids' minds are just trying to... I just like the song. I just like the videos. Who cares what the lyrics are? Who cares what it says? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just great music. Amazing that MTV transformed bearded guys that were very popular more in the biker and blues scene into international stardom by adding keyboards and electronic drums. ZZ Top's Eliminator album came out that year. Remember how popular they were with the fuzzy guitars? Their videos were awesome. Yeah, yeah, they were huge. And this is the year that so many of the thrash metal bands were bursting out, such as Suicidal Tendencies, Metallica's Kill 'Em All, and Slayer's Show No Mercy albums were released. Who would ever figure? This was the early stages. They never made it to MTV. This is the early stages of music getting faster, harder, and heavier than ever before. One thing we both grew up with and we loved was the music of Weird Al Yankovic. And we can credit Dr. Demento. Because you were a Dr. Demento fan, right? Yeah, I was a big Dr. Demento fan. See, I found out about Dr. Demento's show through my cousin. And my cousin had a recording of Weird Al Yankovic. It was Another One Rides the Bus. But yeah, I know it was like, it was a big song like, even where I lived, everyone had heard it. And because I wasn't familiar with popular music, this Weird Al guy, he got my attention. I loved song parodies. Even if I didn't hear the original, I thought the lyrics were funny. Yeah, I think it was still funnier if you knew the original song, but yeah. And the other one, Stop Dragging My Car Around, didn't hear the original song. I heard the Weird Al version first. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his songs are funny, even if you don't know that they're... Yeah, some, I might have heard some of his songs without knowing they were based on anything. And, and yeah, the songs are still funny. Without a doubt, the biggest album of 1983 actually came out at the tail end of 1982. It wasn't until the videos were released on MTV that Michael Jackson's Thriller album, the songs from it, the singles, became huge hits. Billie Jean, Beat It, Thriller. We loved the Michael Jackson videos in our house. I loved all his videos. He he really was, you know, like... um. He lived up to the hype. I mean, everybody loved him, and you could see why. He he was just, I mean, that type of for- performer. He was better than everyone else, made better videos, made better songs. I mean, he it was, was just amazing. great. Yeah. I remember my brother and I with our socks on trying to slide on the kitchen floor doing the moonwalk. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's huge. Did you used to try and do that too? I did, yeah. <laughs> and when he created that 15-minute long video for Thriller at the end of 1983, that was the game changer. Even for MTV, which already had a lot of good videos, and then he comes along and just blows everyone else out of the water. 
because he took the video format as a legitimate art form. It just wasn't something to promote a single. He wanted to take it to the next step. And to have the producers of American Werewolf in London get involved in this, every hour on the hour, do you remember that? We would look at the clock and say, hey, it's almost 8 o'clock. Let's watch Thriller. That, yeah, that was one thing that was only on MTV. Oh, that is so curious. I didn't realize that. Interesting. Interesting. Because I know our cable network, we were getting more channels as time went on. Like when we first got cable, we might have had 10 channels. And then it got into 15. Then it got to 20. You know, they were growing these cable networks at the time. So not everyone had the same channels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. And for KISS fans, 1983 was a year that they took off their makeup live on MTV for the first time. I remember like that was the big deal about KISS is not knowing what they look like underneath the makeup. In fact, we asked other fans, what was their experience seeing what KISS looked like without makeup on MTV for the first time? We're going to talk about what life was like back in 1983 when KISS first took off their makeup. Here with... My name is Chuck Watts with Classic Rock Drops and Kiss Talk. And I'm Mike Williams with Classic Rock Drops and Kiss Talk. So I think back in that time, you know, it was... Kiss were still superheroes to me. Um, I was on board completely at that time with The Elder and uh, Creatures of the Night was, you know, one of my favorite albums. And so when I found out they were taking the makeup off, I, I don't know if I could even fathom I, I do remember seeing sort of like pictures of them and, and without their makeup but seeing that first time I saw the kiss uh, kiss look it up uh, cover man I thought that was just I mean they were ugly dudes but I thought man that's a freaking awesome album cover and then the MTV thing was pretty awesome I, I just remembered any they could have done anything at that time and I would have supported them I, I followed Kiss pretty closely back then so I knew the makeup was coming off but I didn't know really what to expect. So I, I watched MTV when they took off the makeup, and I think even though I'd already heard Lick It Up, I think at that point, that I still kind of felt like, what is this going to be like when I see these guys walk on stage? Because I still had that feeling as a little kid that when I was in the room with Kiss and Makeup, that, wow, I'm in the room with Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace, and Peter, back prior to that, of course. But I didn't know what my feeling was going to be seeing them live. And, of course, that moment when the four of those guys hit that stage with Vinnie Vincent, and I, I mean, it was just, it was still the same for me. It was magic. I think Paul Stanley is the most unsurprising because Paul kind of looks like Paul without the makeup. He's, he's the only one you're like, eh, it looks, looks the same. I'm telling you what, though, the other ones, it was, it was <laughs> look, they all have two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. <laughs> But when you look at that album cover with Gene, you ever see the alternate version? He didn't stick his tongue out. It was boring. I think him sticking his tongue out just solidified that this still is Kiss. Right. And, you know, you talk about, like, Paul looks the most normal, I guess. But Paul's character was also a lot more normal than Gene's character. And Gene struggled with that later on when the makeup came off because he still was trying to play the, the demon character, right? He would walk weird on stage because he would do that 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 strange thing with his knees because he had those huge heels. He he didn't adapt well initially. Right, and I think that that lends itself to the his character was always a little more fantasy than than maybe Paul's or even Ace or Peter's were. 
So I think that lends itself to that. Absolutely. So, you know, Gene probably looked his best in that era on the cover of Lick It Up and probably didn't look good again until the Revenge cover, right? When we when you kind of go, <laughs> when you go through all You were into the B. Arthur era? <laughs> all, all those phases of Gene that we had to go through from Lick It Up cover to Revenge. But, yeah, uh, Tuck's right. I mean, uh, he struggled but finally found his place just in time for uh, it to end and then to put make it back on three years later, right? So. Tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and where they could find you. Well, uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook. We have pages for both Kiss Talk and Classic Rock Drops. Kiss Talk, we talk mainly just about Kiss, just like the name says. Classic Rock Drops, we focus on new music from classic rock artists. And we also sort of expand that a little bit and sometimes talk about new artists who make music that sounds classic. So uh, we cover everything, and uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. Hi, this is Jeremy Asbrock, and when Kiss took off their makeup, I was so excited until I saw the Lick It Up album cover, and then I was so deflated. Hey, this is Ryan Spencer Cook, and when Kiss first took off their makeup, I did not know what to expect. I didn't know if I was happy or sad, a little bit of both, but uh, I'm glad they have it back on. Hi, my name is Joe from Podcast Rock City, and the first time I saw Kiss without their makeup, I thought Gene was ugly. Hi, this is Sonny from Podcast Rock City, and the first time I saw him without makeup, I thought they was all ugly. What's wrong with you? This is Courtney from Nothing, and and I thought everybody, I went through the magazine first, and first they showed Paul, and I was like, oh, and then they showed Gene, and I was like, ooh, luscious lips, and then it was Vinny, so I turned it back to Paul. <laughs> What about the, the big reveal on MTV? I, I remember watching it and being like, um, it was late. I was young. It was late. It was that was late. a weird thing. I want to say it was like mid 10 o'clock or something, at least in my area yeah, on the I, East Coast. I thought it was around midnight. And um, I just remember, I mean, I was excited. But at the same time, I think I might have been a little let down because now they're not wearing the makeup. I wasn't. I didn't know they had makeup when I saw that first time. So I'm like, why are they showing these guys they had makeup on? Like, I had no idea. And then later on, I'm like, that wasn't Ace, was it? it isn't that such a curiosity? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm looking at it. The, at the average person did not know that that was not Ace Fraley. Yeah. And I'm the average person that's coming into it late. And that's one of the reasons why I love you, Hollywood, because you love 80s Kiss. Hollywood. And I still do. Love 80s Kiss. Nothing is better than 80s Kiss. Take that, Joe. We'll fight later. <laughs> All right, tell us a little about your podcast and why our listeners should be tuning into Podcast Rock City. Because we got three, well, four now, crazy people that don't agree, and we're all Kiss fans, and I don't understand how we all deal with each other. And fuck you, Joey. We have a great time. It's live on YouTube every week, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and it's just a fun show. We, it's just four people enjoying spending an hour together, <laughs> enjoying spending an hour together and talking about our favorite band, Kiss. And you can read Joe's body. No, don't read my body. Read my body. I'll, I'm, I'm right now pushing the, the, uh, pot, the, um, the, uh, Phantom of the Park, um, uh, Broadway show. I'm going to write it and it's going to be like, Devereaux, Devereaux. He's a bad guy, Devereaux, Devereaux, Paul, shoot him with your eye. All right, this is Bobby Dreyer, Harem, Hard Rockin' 80s Music, uh, 1983, Kiss taking off the makeup. 
sad, a little bit sad, you know, because I, I thought of end of an era becoming a Kiss fan. I, I just thought they were going to fall in the cracks and be another band of the 80s. Amazing. I, I was I was shocked that they took off their makeup. So now, look, you got Matt Porter here from the Kiss Room. So all Kiss fans know that if you listen to the Kiss Room at thekissroom.com, I was still totally invested when they took the makeup off. And I remember staying up, watching it on MTV, and feeling like it was important, like something was really happening. And obviously, Kiss, you know, not everybody at school talked about them anymore, but I never wavered. I was always a Kiss fan. To some extent, not having Ace and Peter there made it a little different because, you know, you didn't really know Eric Carr or Vinnie Vincent that much. So when they were, you know, but Gene and Paul, you're like, there they are without the makeup. Now, here's the funny thing. I remember watching Kids Are People, too. Right, when, when they, they brought Eric on. When they on. brought Eric on, I was like, I was totally invested in Eric right. because I was like, now I am I'm able to get first dibs on a character. Right. Well, that, the funny thing, I remember there's a funny story about Kids Are People, too. It was going to air on a Sunday morning. And I was allowed to stay home from Sunday school to watch it, but I had to get to church. And it was five blocks away. My mom said, you can stay home and watch it, but you got to get to church. And I remember watching it right to the end, right to the end, right to the end, and then running to church. <laughs> but I watched that when it was first on. And, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, And I had never not been a Kiss fan. So when that happened, really what they should have done, the reveal, they should have shown the video first. So that moment when the camera tilts up and lick it up, and you see their faces—that that was that was a great reveal. That should have been the reveal, but when they did it with the photos, and then they dissolved into them, and Gene Simmons wiggles his eyebrows like, <laughs> "Okay," and he's not hundred percent sure this is a good idea. I think Paul loved the idea. Now Paul can run around, and he doesn't need a costume. He's in sneakers and jeans, and he's running around like he can't believe his luck. But I think Gene had a little bit of a tougher time because now you can't hide behind the armor and the, you know, the boots and everything like that. So it was certainly fun. But, I mean, it was always lick it up was such a fun time to be a Kiss fan. So when the makeup came off, it was just it was kind of Kiss never left for me. And that's it's funny when we're talking 50 years later. You know, I was one of those lucky kids that in 1976, I'm eight years old. Kiss is everything to me and always has been. It's why I do a show called The Kiss Room. <laughs> Tell our listeners about the Kiss Room and why they should be tuning into it. So, look, the Kiss Room, if you're a Kiss fan, if you have any interest, if you have any feelings about Kiss when they took the makeup off, you'd love my show. Go to thekissroom.com. It's a monthly, what I call a Kiss Super Special. Anybody that remembers back in the day when Cream or whatever would put out magazines with all Kiss, and in the back there was some other bands. You discovered P-Funk or Stars or people like that. So I'll work in other bands sometimes, too. But it's really all about KISS, and kind of KISS is the beginning and the end for me, and that's where it comes from. Everything 80s, think Wayne's World meets, uh, oh, my God, that metal show meets Beavis and Butthead. That's what the Harem Podcast is. Check them out. Hi, I'm Alan Tate with the 80s of Rock Podcast. The first time I saw KISS without makeup was probably in 83 or 84, I grew up in a small hillbilly community. We didn't have cable television, and I happened to see the video on Friday night videos, and it said it was Kiss, but those guys didn't have any makeup on, and I was like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> I'm Dennis from the Ages of Rock podcast. Uh, first time I had seen them without makeup, I walked into the mall at Evansville, Indiana, at the record store, and saw the Lick It Up album and went, okay, that's what they look like. You know, we had seen pictures over the years of, 
Paul, like with his covering, basically just his nose. So I kind of knew what Paul looked like. Gene was a lot. Paul had the least amount of makeup, so right. he kind of you knew what he looked like to a degree. But Gene, it was a lot different than what I expected, yeah. you know. And uh, he looked like a, a cab driver. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bill Algie. I'm from uh, Oh Asia Rock Podcast too. So there's three of us. Um, the first time I saw it was in. Uh, it was on MTV, so I saw the reveal. I thought, God damn, they're really ugly. <laughs> I can't believe how many people say that. That's amazing to me. I never thought that. Well, you know, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't. I, I Actually, um, you know, I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, and, and I think it was the right time. I think they really needed to do it because it was things were not going well. They had to switch things up to get people more interested. I don't know that it really worked out the way they wanted it to around that time. But first album out of the gate, look it up. It was pretty damn good, so. I remember there was a Rolling Stones album that had stickers on a naked woman's body, and like nine-year-old me would try and peel off the stickers <laughs> in the record store, saying maybe I can see some boobies. Can you imagine if Kiss had like some kind of color form or stickers or something where you could peel off their makeup on the album? That How different that would be! That would have been cool. They didn't have Kiss color forms, you know. I had them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they uh, unfortunately it, it revealed just black underneath there, so. That was uh, that was the bad part, but yeah, that would have been really cool. I, I th- you know I think it was nobody nobody else has ever done that. What what other band has ever in the history of music ever done anything like that? Nobody. And I think you know that's that's the part of the reason why I will see Kiss for the fifty sixth time or whatever the damn number is in November because th- it's just all unique. And yeah, I know it's the end of the road of the end of the road of the end of the road tour, but I don't really give a crap. So. You know, Gene's probably sitting there now going, where were you in the 80s with that idea? I could have used that. <laughs> hey, tell us a little bit about your podcast and why our listeners should be tuning in to you. All right. We are a just three guys sitting around talking about music. Sometimes we have guests. Sometimes we just make a random topic and rate certain albums or do album reviews. And then sometimes we just do potpourri, we call it. Basically, we have no ideas, so let's just turn it on and, and see what we got. So we we're, uh, we have about 330-something episodes now. Uh, you can check us out on YouTube. We actually do video, but we're also on all the other Spreaker and uh, 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 Spotify and all, all, the, all the things. Hey, I'm David Lowry. I'm a guitar player here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I remember distinctly about watching Kiss take off their makeup on MTV and being completely blown away that they would even do something like that. Um, and at that age, you don't really think about all, this, all the, the business decisions behind it. But, man, it was such an impactful thing because it was, the, the coolest thing about KISS was the mystique. You know, the, you didn't know who they were. They had this storyline behind all the characters. And, and to see that go away was pretty dramatic, to be honest with you. Um, but the interesting thing is... It never lost its power, never lost its um, effect on people, and they were able to still kind of keep that old-school mystique alive even though they weren't doing the makeup, and that was obvious when they did the reunion. So, you know, it was very amazing, actually. It was shocking, but back then, Kiss was always shocking. They they were always getting parents to get riled up, and, and if you weren't supposed to do it, they were going to do it, and that's what brought the attention to them. And I think the interesting thing about the Lick It Up video, the theme was post-apocalyptic. And Road Warrior was a huge popularity at that time. 
And you notice that a lot of the metal world was latching on to that aesthetic of the post-apocalyptic theme? Absolutely. I mean, Motley Crue did it, Crocus did it, all kinds of bands had that theme in their video. Scorpions. I think it became kind of a trope, you know, among the video directors. It faded away fairly quickly, though, within, you know, two or three years. But I think just the, the, the hard edge of the apocalyptic world with the hard edge of rock music really kind of blended pretty well together. It just got overdone like everything else. You know, we, we find a horse and we beat it to death, right? So, but, it, you know, very cool, very cool stuff. Um, I wouldn't have missed that era for the, for the world because it was such an exciting, unique time in music history. Hey, David, tell our listeners about you and how they can find out more about your music. Mm, Facebook's probably the easiest way. Uh, I play guitar in eight tribute bands, but the most active ones are uh, the Pat Benatar tribute, and then I have a... Uh, Bill Collins Genesis tribute that's pretty active that's called Face Value but uh, Face Value on Facebook and put in Tribute Band and it'll be right there Hey this is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast and my feelings or my perception of Kiss when they first took the makeup off is I was a late Kiss fan so I came in somewhere around Creatures of the Night so for me I saw one of those last shows of Creatures of the Night tour where it was Benny Vincent in makeup. So I saw that tour and then the big MTV thing. I remember gathering around the TV with all my buddies watching, oh my God, what are they going to look like? What are they going to look like? But my experience was based on the short period of time that I was a like a rabid Kiss fan, right? I was a rock and roll fan, but and I knew about KISS and I, you know, was sort of a fan, but not to the extent of a lot of KISS fans. I didn't have to go through the Elder and, and, uh, <laughs> I didn't have to go through that period, yeah, unmasked period of time. So I picked it up when they were coming back into rock and roll. That was the grown up rock years for me and KISS. But I thought it was cool because I never really cared that much about the makeup having just come into KISS. Now I thought it was cool seeing them with the makeup but it didn't phase me when they didn't have the makeup i just felt like okay this is more of a real thing and more of a legit thing and it wasn't so gimmicky like it was with the makeup that being said you know fast forward when they put the makeup back on you know i was like holy shit i get to see the whole original (laughs) band with the makeup on so that was a cool thing as well so that's my feelings on kiss without the makeup Hey, tell our listeners about your podcast and why they should be tuning in to you. Yeah, if you're a KISS fan or if you're a rock and roll fan, hard rock fan in general, listen to the Growing Up Rock uh, podcast. It's G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. We release weekly, and our episodes are all centered around hard rock and metal music and just rock and roll in general. My, myself, my co-host, Sonny Pooney. Hollywood. Hollywood. For those of you that listen to Podcast Rock City, you guys know Sonny. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great podcast if you're into rock and roll. As always, we're going to talk about one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog Magazine. This one is on the back cover. TSR, The Game Wizards, hardcover editions of a Dark Ages drama. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons game system. Our world-famous AD&D game system converts the novice enthusiast into a paragon of chivalry. Within the hardbound pages of our book lurks an immeasurable wealth of information. 
And now that AD&D books are hot enough to be added to any bestsellers list, more and more players have graduated to the highest ranks. Become part of our prominent class of AD&D game players by starting your set today. And it shows the D&D and Demigods edition, the Fiend Folio, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual, and Player's Handbook. Like in our collection, we have the original de- Deities and Demigods, the one with the Cthulhu Mythos. We know that that came under fire for IP use. The Fiend Folio was a book that was made primarily of fan submissions. I mean, this is, what do we say? This was the era of... The Satanic Panic. This was <laughs> everywhere. You you go to a bookstore and you'd see these books and it was horrifying to a degree, but it was it was exciting. So, yeah, AD&D had like all of those different books. There's like five of there, right? So it must have been, I mean, it, we know it was hugely popular. They kept coming out with this stuff. Yeah, totally. And the more and more as time goes on, we're seeing all the cross connections. Starlog Magazine was drawing in all the geeks. No matter what your fandom was, no matter what type of format you like playing or watching or viewing, Starlog had it all. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.